0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hey, everybody. Today, we're going to do something a little different. Uh, Our first Ask Us Anything episode, just like an AMA, but we have to put a U in there because there are two of us. But before we answer a bunch of questions, shall we answer a question? (laughs)
1: Let's do it. Let's ask ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) first. Our AUA-related check-in question is this one. What is your favorite way to communicate?
0: I mean, I'm definitely, it's weird because I'm right at that generational cutoff between like Gen X and millennial, where I think I like to get around a table with real people in real life, but I definitely default to text or Slack
1: Ninety nine
0: percent of the time, also because I'm just a little bit antisocial. Like I'm, I definitely am always thinking about some other thing, and so it's nice to be able to do asynchronous communication with people. So I would say, yeah, most of the time, it's it's going to be a, a digital instant message,
1: <laughs> a digital instant message. <laughs> so you are not afraid to call i if like you're to call. a caller with me. Not
0: afraid to call. If if, if the if the situation warrants it and and like the fidelity of the conversation requires it, I won't be one of those people that like writes you a 2000 word text like right. some people will. Like that's not going to that's not going to happen. But I definitely will if if I can be dealt with in a couple sentences, it's going to be a text. <laughs>
1: right, totally. What about you? I really like video.
0: Mhm.
1: Um, You know, I really like FaceTiming with my friends so I can see their cute families and children who don't live near me. (laughs) Um, I also love staying home. And so, you know, particularly in a work context where a Zoom meeting means that I don't have to get on a plane or even get in my car. I'm just like, fuck yes. And I, you know, I like seeing people. Uh, I'm super social, but so much of our job is about interaction. Right, right. But I just find video means like there's not the book ending of getting to a place and starting the meeting and it's just I feel like I get 85% of the same juice as being in person but without like so much of the hassle that uh I do a lot of that. And one of my best friends and I have gotten really into using Marco Polo to just mm-hmm. exchange videos, which is also very fun and Super funny. Fun. And there's I like a- that she can't respond, like, in the moment. <laughs> so I just, like, leave her. These videos just hazing her. And, like, uh, she can't say shit. She just has to record a new video and send it back to me.
0: That's right. Yeah, that's right. Like good. the only, It's like a pigeon. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's funny. There's a b- debate brewing in the circles I follow on Twitter about, you know, do we use video all the time or do we never use video and why? And the people that like to talk and walk and the people that like to see body language and it feels like it's one of those things that's not going to meet everyone's needs. Totally. So I'm, I'm open to just, you know, going with whatever the person I'm talking to really wants to do, as long as they have a an informed reason rather than just like a, you know, I'm embarrassed reason.
1: Well, it's a funny thing, not to go on a tangent, but I actually find that I retain a lot more information when I'm just on the phone, but I'm doing right. something physical with right. my hands and there's a lot of research about that. But I have such low trust that people aren't multitasking because- yes. Everybody does all the time that, even though I generally don't, and like if I'm sitting there like painting my nails, I am fully listening and I'm probably right, right. retaining way more information than if I can see your face. I've just had too much trauma in my life from people taking my time and not listening to shit yes. and just being fully somewhere else. That now I'm just like, to me, videos like it's part entertainment and it's part compliance. I'm just yes. like, you're gonna take my time you are going to be be here here
0: now. Yeah, Yeah,
1: exactly. I I want to see your face and see if you're texting. (laughs) Okay. So today is our first Ask Us Anything. This is a meeting format we often recommend to clients, particularly those who are going through transformation and are wanting to have dialogue with a large group of people as they are making moves. So we asked the Twitterverse for questions and y'all came through real nicely. Uh, we're going to get to as many of those as we can today. But if we don't, it might be because we have an episode coming soon that is dedicated to the question you asked us, or it might be because we just didn't like it, or it might be on a future <laughs> ask with anything. Who can say? Don't take it personally. So, um, so let's roll. Aaron, you want to pick off the first one?
0: Yeah, so uh, the first question we'll hit today came from Neil, uh, who asked, Some people are extremely dubious of the idea of doing away with hierarchical structures. Yes, they are, Neil, 100%. Truth. Um, First, what are some examples of successful non-hierarchical organizations, and what are they doing? And second, are there hybrids that maintain a level of hierarchy, but allow for less controlling, flatter dynamics? And what are some examples of that? So, I mean, certainly, having you know done the research for Brave New Work, I can tell you there's a lot of both. Um, we, you know, if you want to go for the the very non-hierarchical examples, the classic, you know, kind of canonical ones are going to be W. L. Gore, the makers of Gore-Tex, or Bertzorg, the home healthcare organization in the Netherlands, or Favi, uh, which is a brass auto parts manufacturer in France, or Morningstar, which is a tomato processor in California, or higher now in China, who seems to be doing away with a lot of that. Um, those are the ones that people talk about the most. There are you know dozens of examples, and at the back of the book, actually, I list about 68 that are either on that journey somewhere or, or pretty far along. Um, and the thing they seem to have in common structurally, just for what it's worth, is not that they have no hierarchy. Um, it's that they don't have a hierarchy where positional authority kind of runs the day, where someone in one position, like a VP or a you know director or something, has blanket authority across a whole host of things. They generally have hierarchies of reputation, hierarchies of roles and influence that people hold. So it's just a more subtle set of relationships, and it's usually more fluid and more flexible, um, in some cases even elected. So I don't know, what would you add to that, Rodney?
1: Yeah, I think If you are contemplating this in your org or you're trying to influence your org in this direction, really good first steps that get at the hybrid thing you asked about are things like elected leaders or at least as leaders are being chosen for roles, doing that with a broader data set so that everything isn't being decided top down, you know, all the way from the CEO to the, the very bottom of the organization, there are a lot of interim steps in terms of groups making more decisions around who their leaders are and what kind of role they want them to play that doesn't completely upend hierarchy, but certainly makes it more uh, democratic in nature.
0: And there are, like I said, a lot of organizations out there that are just flatter and more empowered. You know, I mean Basecamp is a really famous one. Um, GitLab is another one that comes to mind. Uh, you know, there's a whole host of them that are basically still run by leaders who are setting some kind of vision, who maybe have some outsized authority, but who generally just through common sense and practice have done away with a lot of the needless, you know, hierarchy and power issues that most organizations have. So they're out there, uh definitely, you know, go do the work. And frankly, um if you if you find one of them and ask them to to tell you about another, they the the chain is never ending. So definitely go do that. And thanks for that question, Neil. Um, let's do another one. We have we have quite a few to get through. So Rodney, why don't you set us up on Numero Dose?
1: All right. Uh, I apologize if I'm pronouncing your name incorrectly, from <laughs> Choni, I believe. Uh, how do you encourage innovation at every level of an organization? great question when we get asked a lot in our work uh i'm gonna take one angle on this aaron and you take the other that i predict will want to hit okay uh i think organizations that are pretty traditional but i see this all over the place we tend to kind of fall in love with our category and our competitors and we stay kind of myopic in terms of what we read and how we think i even find this for myself like i can stay deep in the Self management future work. Right. And there's a lot of other interesting stuff happening out in the world that might not be directly applicable, but that is really great fodder or spark for innovation. So I just think part of it encouraging experimentation at every level is what is the stimulus throughout the organization that people are seeking, whether that is through learning experience or through external conversation. Field trips. Like, what is your version of like the liberal arts education right. where you're just looking outside of your own little mousetrap to see what other people are doing? And then, how are you making sense of that inside of your organization so you can decide what to try?
0: It's funny you say that because when I think back on, on, you know, which client of mine was the best innovator, mm-hmm. the, the person that comes to mind had an incredible field trip habit mm. where it was just like, always meeting new people always out there always you know asking questions just very curious about the world out there
1: yeah and a lot
0: less curious frankly about the world inside (laughs) the system And, and i think that's yeah i think that's a huge piece of it so obviously encouraging and modeling that would be a great thing to do the other thing is really just about experimentation so you know innovation is one of those words that gets thrown around quite a bit and that everybody wants but we're not exactly sure what it is and the way i think about it is it's just uh, change—random or controlled change—in in any aspect of the organization. It's products, its services, its ways of working, its strategy, its you know culture that um, that ends up producing value or that ends up being useful uh, to the organization in serving its purpose. And so, really, what you're trying to do is create. Variation. You're trying to create more randomness in the same way that innovation in you know in the wild comes from effectively errors, <laughs> mutations in the genetic code. You're trying to have sort of intelligent errors uh, in in your system, and so that means having more of an experimental mindset about innovation. Like we're trying things. We're not trying to make innovation happen. We're we're letting those collisions occur. And one of the things that I came upon when I was uh, writing the book was this idea of acceptation that you can have a trait that turns out to be good for something you didn't expect, right? So like, Dinosaurs have feathers to regulate their temperature and then suddenly it turns out that when they jump out of trees They can glide a lot further chasing prey and suddenly flight is born, you know Or the the scientist who had a chocolate bar in his pocket when he was playing with uh, What ultimately became a microwave and it melted and it was like, oh, that's you know, that's useful So I do think you want to have these happy accidents and and the way to, to make that happen is have an environment where there is a default way of doing things there's a, a a way that's sort of the proven standard way but where there's an agreement between all the colleagues involved that if you want to go outside the default you can but the thing you owe back to the group is your experimental results so you don't want to do it our way do it your way but tell us what happens so that we can learn as a system
1: the only other add that that sparked for me is something we talked about in a previous episode on meetings, actually, which is there is a mindset shift here that just is about what work is. And like innovation is not going to come to you while you are cranking on an Excel spreadsheet (laughs) or responding to emails or like sitting in a status meeting. We have to reorient ourselves that in a knowledge and wisdom economy, Currency is knowledge and wisdom, and we don't get those things by doing the, like, automaton nonsense that many yeah. of our jobs are made of. And so, you know, I was talking to a friend recently about the challenge of wanting to read for pleasure and then also expand <laughs> her thinking in terms of her work. And I was like, dude, do that during the work day. Like, that right. is work. It is good work to be sitting and consuming and writing and thinking, you don't have to sacrifice like reading historical fiction for fun to be reading about your profession because that should be part of work.
0: Yeah. You're not a leaf blower. Your job is not just to like output only all the time.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Okay. Here's another one. Uh, This is from Jennifer. Jennifer says, I'm working on a project focused on talent slash our people calibration. Talent calibration, one of my favorite things.
1: Oh, Um, boo. Good for you, (laughs) Jennifer.
0: The goal is to transform the current process from one that is time consuming, not valuable, and focused almost completely on pay to one that is focused on our people and helping them develop and grow. I would love to hear an episode about this topic and your thoughts on talent calibration. We certainly could do an episode on that. I think it's it's big yeah, enough. Yeah, let's do it. Um she asks, what are your best practices and tips? How have others transformed the process and the focus and what they are doing? So what do you think about this? I'm curious what you think, Rodney, since you probably spent some time doing people There's talent so calibration many. in your past.
1: Yeah, this is my. Uh, this feels like home. This feels like my particular hive. <laughs> so I definitely want to do a whole episode on this, Jennifer. It's a great topic and an area, uh, like a lot of areas that fall in the HR domain that we just accept mediocrity and accept lack of results because we don't have the time to invest in doing it better. So good <laughs> on you that you're giving it a shot. Um, there are a couple of things that are non-negotiables for me on this topic one is i don't care what anyone says if you are attaching dollar bills to the output of a talent process you have already lost the war there is no earth Mm -hmm. on which human beings who are rational think generatively and creatively and objectively and honestly about assessing themselves or others when they know that it is directly related to the number of dollars that will be deposited in their bank account. It is just a breeding ground for gamification and politics and shenanigans. So I hear people all the time who are like, no, 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 we're more evolved and smarter than that. It's everybody else's (laughs) problem, not ours. And I'm like, no, you're definitely not. Um, So my first sort of universal truth is I know that you have to do work in order to change people's compensation. I lived in that world for a long time, whether that's about incentive comp or adjusting base pay. I recognize that that's important work to be done. If you relate it to talent practices, things will be screwed up. So figure out how to decouple those two first and foremost.
0: It's funny because in some ways the answer to this question is similar to the answer about budgeting. Because Mm -hmm. budgeting suffers from that same problem, which is, oh, I want I want one number to be my my forecast and my target, you know, and and it's like, well, it can't really be both of those things at the same time. It can't be accurate and also uh, aspirational. Um, so I like that idea of decoupling and figuring out, all right, if we need to do some kind of evaluation of what was your contribution and how does that need to be rewarded, let's put that over there because that's about describing the past or that's describing right. the present. And then and then over here, we can talk about development. And And what we know about development is that it's really tricky. <laughs> um, it's tricky and sticky. <laughs> right. So, you know, there's we, we have uh, discussed the feedback issue and, and debate recently in one of our episodes that's going to be coming out shortly, and the fact that feedback may or may not actually be helpful. What we mm-hmm. do know is that deliberate practice with feedback loops of some kind, uh, usually positive, actually helps people develop and grow. So what we need to be thinking about is how do we have a talent, process where people are getting the perspective they need that they're asking for that's often positive around the things that they're choosing to work on and that they're getting lots of reps or chances to to sort of try and see how that feedback shapes their their performance and frankly just a lot of practice like i think the the thing people undervalue and underestimate in all talent development processes is just how well does the system create opportunities for people to try stuff over and over again whether it be in simulation or in reality i just think like the people that practice more just like in the world of you know professional violinists like the people that practice more tend to be better um and particularly those that practice in that deliberate kind of controlled bursty way.
1: Yeah, that's right. My other tip and and this is a this is a prevailing tip is <laughs> decide what you are designing for. So get the people that you are collabing with into a room. Make sure that there are users in that group, not just talent or HR or OD people, but like the end users are included. And start with the exercise of what are the top three things that we are designing for? So fill in the blank. If our talent management process were perfect, it would blank.
0: Yeah. What do we get?
1: What do we get from it? What is it meant to do? And then really challenge yourself in that group to forget everything that you already know and design what an MVP would look like with those first principles in mind. We get so hung up in the monolith of information that we have and the decades and decades and decades of experience that we're sort of rutted in that it's hard to just shift out of what is it meant to do and then what are we going to try? And often that is where we see a lot of innovation and some real insight come through because yeah. what we find is like, we can actually throw away a lot of the stuff that we do that doesn't produce and try <laughs> something really lightweight that we think is gonna deliver one of those principles.
0: Well, and one of the things I like about having a, a simpler system that's more marketplace where either leaders are elected or where teams are, are sort of selected by, you know team members are selected by the teams themselves is that it it solves a lot of those questions that talent calibration is often trying to solve, which is like, Mm -hmm. hey, who's good enough to lead this group or who should move over and take this role? Well, if you just actually let the people decide... Right. based on the you know kind of ebb and flow of talent and reputation in the system you'd be surprised like people actually have a really good idea of who should lead that team um and and they have that idea based on actual lived experience not based on one person's perspective or one person's you know moment of drinking whiskey with someone else after hours like it really is yeah. it's based in reality
1: The one other thing to mention is Most talent processes are designed on the assumption that everybody wants to move up and make more. Right. And when you and 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 that's for good reason. Like I was just talking to a very dear friend about this because like that's in the air that we breathe. It's like uh-huh. your value is based on your title and where your office is and how many layers there are between you and the boss and all of that stuff. But when you get into more of the marketplace model that you're describing, Erin, I find that to be quite people positive because for most of us... It's not realistic that we're just going to go hard all the time forever and keep climbing the ladder. Like for most of that doesn't work with our lives. And I find a lot of power and a lot of value, not just at the ready, but when I was working for myself and at my prior company in being able to basically be like, you know, half of this year is going to be a sprint when this right, sprint right. is over i'm going to dial it back i'm going to work on something internal that is going to impact my compensation but i'm going to be the steward of that like i just i don't like the notion in most hierarchies and in most talent processes that's like everybody wants to get to the top right hand corner of the nine box grid and just get more like get more <laughs> people get more budget get more responsibility because most of us want to do good work and want purpose and meaning and validation and all of that stuff. But most of us don't want more all the time forever.
0: Yeah, and so yeah. like,
1: think about what a talent process looks like that respects the fact that like, we are human beings who ebb and flow in our right. careers.
0: Right. So, so true on two levels. One, I mean, you've identified the sociopathy in our economic operating system and how that bleeds into mm-hmm. You know, the cultural grows. ideology, which is like every company should grow forever and just every person forever. should grow forever and we should all just grow forever. Like, you know, right. more, like more, you know, more. unstoppable. So that I think that's that's something that we're all questioning now at some level. The other piece of this is, you know, when you have a system designed for that, ironically, you actually get this opposite thing, which is you get this whole Peter principle thing. Mm-hmm. Of If it's only if it's designed for everyone to go to their absolute limit, then what you have is a lot of people up over their skis. Yeah, that's um, right. And, and maybe not even because they wanted to be right, but just because this the, the flow of the water kind of pushed them there. So mm-hmm. you, there's a lot of negative consequences there. Um, we said we'd do an episode on that, and I think we just did.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I um, think there's more to say there. There's a
0: couple hours for that, but that was the, that was the extended, uh, you know, version of the record. Um, all right. No, another question here from Alex. So Alex says, how do you balance teams that are going horizontal and trying to increase transparency and agency with interaction fatigue? Are there ways to encourage sharing and engagement without everything becoming this sort of involved, open discussion? Which is a great question because one of the big fears of opening up is it's going to become this constant barrage of interaction and communication and, you know, kind of everything gets overdone. So I think right. that that's I think that's a great um, pushback. And we touched on this a little bit in the transparency episode uh, with Joel a while back. I think, you know, there's simple things we can do. The first is, uh, and and this is actually in in Rodney's words, make people read shit. Um, (laughs) You know, so much of... the work we're doing to communicate is just about status. And and we used to have a colleague that would say, status should live in software. I buy that all day. Like it, I don't want to have to have a conversation with you just to tell you the status of something. So instead, what we can do is just keep records of where we're at. And when we're doing the work with our own teams, just do it in a transparent and public place so that other people can have a look when they need to in terms of knowing what's on our to-do list and what's what's open and what's closed and what's done and what's shipped. Like If that's all public, then people can look when they need to know and that eliminates a lot of that interaction. The other thing that comes to mind for me is just more clarity. So I think often we have interaction fatigue and collaboration overload when we don't know where we're supposed to be so like Mm -hmm. they're making decisions i want to influence i'm not sure if i have the right or not so i'll just go um i'm going to invite everybody because i don't want to alienate anybody like there's a lot of that sort of uh social confusion that goes on when we don't have clarity about roles and about teams and so just doing the homework early of like what is my role or, my, or the roles that I hold, plural, what are the purposes, what are those objectives? And that'll give me guidance about where I actually need to be. And then if I find that in order to do that work, I have to be interacting with these other teams so much, that's a clue that my structure not, m- might not be right, right? If I have to be 15 times a day interacting with other teams to do the thing I'm supposed to do, I might not be rooted in the right place. And that that's telling me a story that I can chase as well.
1: My only add to that would be the mindset shift in a bureaucratic or a political or a not super safe or not super self managed system. We do feel like we need to know all of the things and it, and transparency like becomes a space race of like who can consume more stuff. There is a level of self-control that you can model that to your point, Aaron, through the lens of your roles and through the lens of your priorities, you can pull the information that is actually useful to you right. and do the hard work. And it is hard work of knowing that there are interesting things going on and you are not going to be read into them, and that's part of your job. Like part of your job as a filter (laughs) is to not know things that you don't need to know. And that's a real struggle because like people want to pull us into their stuff and they want our opinions and we're kind of like, ooh, that seems like a sexy project, let me just like dip in there. And it does take some level of being really thoughtful to say like, am I responding to some sort of impulse around fear or insecurity or not being in the loop or is this information that I actually need to do my job properly right. and that is right. a that's a skill set and a mindset that takes a lot of fiddling with and a lot of development and honing over time
0: yeah i think it is funny there's definitely this desire in leaders to survey Mm-hmm. to see all that is happening mm-hmm. and and it almost feels like they're accountable for that like if, right. if i can't see everything that's happening then i can't be responsible for everything that's happening and i think the the point here is like just just as you're saying shifting the mindset from in order to be responsible i have to see all and control all to in order to be responsible i have to create conditions in which i trust that things are going well, and that if they're not, we're going to get wind of it as a system. It's a you know it comes back to parenting a lot for me, but it's a lot like parenting. Like when they're at school, you're not watching them on a surveillance camera, or I hope you're not. Um, like that things are just going according to according to a set of uh, you know rules and constraints, and you find out later how it went. And usually the you know the the info you get is pretty sparse, right? So you just have to trust into that. And I think it's the same thing here. And frankly. In some ways, I think you can measure the health of a system and the resilience and adaptivity of a system by how comfortable its leadership is in not knowing. Mm-hmm. And so if, if I can sit here and say, yeah, I have no idea what's happening and I'm totally comfortable in that, mm-hmm. that, that to me is actually um, quite an accolade.
1: Nice. All right. Should we do one more to wrap it?
0: Uh, yeah. Let's do one more. Uno mas.
1: Uno mas from Harry. What are your recommendations when it comes to books about org design? Couldn't put down Brave New Work. Nice plug, Harry. Bonus <laughs> points. And currently reading Reinventing Organizations, also a banger. Need more. He didn't say also a banger. That was that was my. Editor. That was your ad lib. Uh huh. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs>
0: they know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. Uh, yeah. So uh, I'll throw out a few. Um, I love the book Essentialism. I recommend it to literally everyone I know. Uh. By McEwen, "Organize for Complexity" uh, is a great one. Little book of Beyond Budgeting. I give to most of my clients who are stuck in budgeting hell. Those are three (laughs) hits.
0: Uh, This is such a tough one for me, Harry, because as I sit here in this podcast booth, I'm staring at the Brave New Work library, which is about 400 titles wide. So um, it's just it's there's such a wealth of knowledge that's been out there for literally decades. Major plus ones to the books that uh, that Rodney mentioned. I would also throw into the mix uh, Drive by Dan Pink. It's a good encapsulation of self-determination theory and kind of what actually motivates us. Nonviolent communication is a solid classic for those of us that are trying to communicate better. Um, team of teams, back to uh, Rodney's heydays.
1: Um, hey, man, this is my heyday.
0: Well, that's, I guess that's true. It's a constant heyday for you. You're, you're still making <laughs> so much hey. um <laughs> Uh, Rework is actually a really good one. It's very, you know, shortened to the point, but it just speaks to the pragmatism uh, of good org design. We the People is a good um, summary on sociocracy. So is uh, Many Voices, One Song, by the way, if you're getting into that. Um, Unboss is a solid one with an incredible uh, actual physical design.
1: And then for non-books, a uh, couple wrecks, I'm really enjoying Lelou's video series that mm. is on his website. I'm also really enjoying Marcus Buckingham's video series. Hmm. Uh, Nine Lines About Work is dope, and the videos are very consumable and very good. Nice. And also for the Twitterverse, uh, follow John Cutler. He tweets all the time, <laughs> deep product guy, in our space. I think uh, his Twitter is a masterpiece.
0: He is constantly tweeting. It's I'm I'm impressed and a little bit aghast. <laughs> um it's yeah it's it's really good and, and also just the conversations that it sparks are really healthy ones to be having so yeah that's those are some places to start Harry if you if you get to the back of those and you're still looking for more uh shoot us a note and we'll send you the full the full list and you can uh, spend a few years of your life reading <laughs> um awesome all right we have uh, a few more here that I think are going to end up becoming episodes so at that point I think we'll probably we to a close our first AUA, ask us anything. We will do this again. Uh, right now we're thinking about actually doing it roughly quarterly so that we can get into things and we may um, you know change the the theming and the structure a little bit, but just generally uh, save your questions, um, send them to podcast at the ready if you have them, and we will we will uh, get a new episode of this going in about 12 weeks' time. Um, in the meantime, uh, Rodney, always a pleasure. It was lovely. Uh, Let's throw a quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good in the booth. Uh, Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we get to help organizations around the world change the way they work. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. If you like what you're hearing, a review would mean a lot, or even better, forward this show to someone who needs it. And as for you, thanks so much for listening. Now go change something.